You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Tim Rice, and this is episode 49 of my podcast, Get Onto My Cloud. Having been working recently on a potential pop single, my tribute to, or at least my acknowledgement of, the forthcoming G7 political summit in Cornwall, which is a song entitled uh, G7, I found myself reminiscing about my early days in the music business when I was a management trainee at EMI Records, the company that then modestly billed itself as the greatest recording organization in the world, which, in 1966, it was. Incidentally, the story behind G7, the song I wrote with Peter Hobbs, was featured in Get Onto My Cloud number 48, in which you will speedily gather that the song is not an outpouring of praise for global leaders, but rather a tribute to the magic and history of the number seven. But back to my formative years in the pop record industry. EMI was quite justified in 1966 to print that slogan, the greatest recording organization in the world, on its record sleeves and in its advertisements. Under the energetic and imaginative leadership of Sir Joseph Lockwood, it had become a powerful force in virtually every aspect of the music business. It had its own studios at Abbey Road, not then the world-famous tourist attraction it became after the Beatles' 1969 album featuring the Fab Four on the Zebra Crossing just outside the studio. EMI also owned factories that actually manufactured the discs and the gramophones on which they were played. It owned shops where they were sold, and it owned the copyrights of vast numbers of songs recorded by both themselves and their rivals. Its three major British pop labels were Columbia, Parlophone, and His Master's Voice. It also owned the US-based Capitol Records, and acted as UK licensor for many other American labels, notably Tamla Motown. It had many classical music and non-music interests too, but to 99% of the outside world, EMI meant pop. The only record companies of remotely similar stature in the UK were Decker, Philips and Pie. EMI House, then a recent addition to the hitherto tasteful Manchester Square, was a mildly hideous but practical six-storey building almost totally devoted to the music side of the company's business. This was where I learnt about the nuts and bolts of the recording industry. Technically, I was a management trainee, really one of half a dozen glorified office boys. We wore suits and ties and clocked in by 9am, whether or not we'd been out late the night before at a concert or club, allegedly working or talent spotting. The music business then was still extremely conservative, at least within the empires of the major record companies, despite the fact that the swinging 60s were well underway. 
All this was changing fast, as independent record producers were beginning to finance recordings which they then released or sold to the major companies, replacing the system of in-house producers, of whom EMI had had a distinguished roster. George Martin and several others rightly miffed at the paltry incomes they received for producing huge hit records from the Beatles downwards, had recently broken away from EMI to form their own company, enabling them to earn more than a fixed salary from their creative efforts. Even so, in 1966, great recording managers such as Norrie Paramore and Wally Ridley were still operating from offices within EMI House. I thus joined a company in a state of some flux, but still the world's number one. This was thanks primarily to the Beatles, whose run of staggering success since late 1962 showed no signs whatsoever of decline. In fact, they were getting bigger all the time. As the journalist Maureen Cleave put it so wisely, the world was then divided into two groups, the Beatles and everybody else. But the Beatles were nothing like EMI's only strength, a myriad merely mortal acts, some only a little less potent in terms of record sales, such as the Beach Boys, the Hollies, and several Tamla Motown stars, kept the company in the charts between Beatle releases. Although it was amazing how the entire EMI workforce seemed to measure time by the week since, or until, the next record by John Paul, George, and Ringo. My first morning of management training was interrupted by the summons of the building's entire staff, over 200 people to a pep talk in the company's conference room. The management were obviously concerned about the fact that, since the Beatles' last number one at the end of 1965, We Can Work It Out and Day Tripper, only Manfred Mann, who were about to lose their charismatic lead singer Paul Jones and defect to Fontana, had taken EMI to the top of the singles' charts. Frank Sinatra, of all people, was the current number one with Strangers in the Night, which must have had a lot of the more ancient executives wondering if they'd been right all along and maybe we should perhaps unload the odd beat group. Bob Dylan on CBS and the Rolling Stones on Decca were running the Beatles extremely close in sales and cultural impact. We were exhorted to find new talent, whatever our department. After a week or two in the main zoo, I requested a more specific role, and to my delight, I was posted to the A&R department. This was hitting the jackpot. I could have been sent to the post room or to the classical floor. A&R, the artists and repertoire division, was where hit records were actually conceived, where stars came to discuss their next sessions. The king of the department was Norrie Paramore, whose greatest days as a record producer had been in the late 50s and early 60s, thanks primarily to his work with Cliff Richard and the Shadows, both still highly important EMI recording acts. I began attending recording sessions in an extremely minor capacity, often simply as an observer to look and learn. Seeing and hearing Cliff and the Shadows at work was easily the highlight, even if the first Cliff Richard session I attended was his re-recording in German of his recent success, All My Love. The first English-language hit recording I witnessed was produced by Norrie's nephew David, then my immediate boss, and performed by Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers. It was a cover of a song from the forthcoming Beatles album, Revolver. EMI obviously had the inside track 
as far as forthcoming Beatles albums were concerned, and usually managed to beat other companies in the race to cover new Lennon-McCartney songs. Cliff Bennett and his band took Got to Get You Into My Life to number three in the charts. I was there. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another room, maybe I could see another kind of man there. Ooh, and I'd certainly see you. Ooh, did I tell you I need you every single day of my life? You didn't run, you didn't lie. After a few weeks, I was given the opportunity to make some creative contributions of my own. I was urged by Norrie and his team to get out and about, searching for new talent. Discovery of same could lead to my being allowed to produce an actual recording, an audition session at least. My EMI card got me into a lot of London clubs that would not normally have admitted non-entities. I generally had a great time gawping at established stars, but unearthed no new ones we were encouraged to go further afield. I went up to Newcastle, where I invited a local band called The Sect down to London for a recording test, in preference to a rival outfit I saw fronted by someone called Brian Ferry. I asked The Sect to record The Left Bank's recent US hit, but UK flop, Walk Away Renee, and the Dylan classic It's All Over Now Baby Blue, which they did very well in three hours at Abbey Road. I produced the session in as much as I sat there while the engineer masterminded everything. Unfortunately, no one higher up than me in the EMI, i.e. almost everybody, wanted the sect to become an EMI act. Walk Away Renee became a big hit on EMI for the Four Tops, 
a few months later. My second attempt at finding the new Beatles at least got released on EMI's Columbia label. The group were Tamla Motown obsessives who hailed from the South End area named the Marvin Lois Enterprise. I travelled down to the depths of Essex to witness them in action, and apart from their less-than-catchy name and their determination only to perform Motown songs, they had quite a bit going for them. I rechristened them The Shell and found them an original song to sing. Not one of mine, unfortunately, though I did discreetly play them one or two Weber Rice compositions, which they politely rejected without knowing who was to blame for them. Every so often, junior staff from EMI's music publishing arm did the rounds of Norrie's department, hoping to persuade us to record their copyrights. And I thought one of these, Goodbye Little Girl, would suit the former Marvin Lois Enterprise. So did they, and we made a booking at Abbey Road. My new discoveries attacked it with vim, and we even picked up a decent review in Record Retailer, the music trade paper of the day. But it flopped, and the shell were able to return to being the Marvin Lois Enterprise, which they'd preferred being anyway. At least they could say the Marvin Lois Enterprise had never failed on record. They were talented, and unlucky to get such an inexperienced producer first time, and I fear last time, out. The Shell, Goodbye Little Girl, 
my first ever release as a record producer. My next assignment was to produce a single by a young man named Murray Head. He'd already made a couple of records for EMI under Norrie's direction, but neither had succeeded despite strong record company support. EMI had now lost faith in Murray, and the good-looking singer was finding it difficult even to get a meeting with his producer, despite the fact that he had a deal to record three singles. I got to know Murray quite well as he hung around our offices hoping vainly for a friendly word from above. I'd been very impressed by Murray's vocals on his first two records, so when a harassed Norrie eventually asked, no told, me to supervise Murray's third and final single, I was delighted, even though I was instructed not to exceed a budget of £400. Murray had actually got a job with an insurance company, so deflated was he by his lack of progress. But shortly after I was foisted onto him, he won a good part in a movie, The Family Way, starring James Mason and Hayley Mills. Bye-bye insurance. Not only that, he'd been asked to provide a song for the soundtrack, which was in the main to be written by, wait for it, Paul McCartney. Murray played me a demo of the song he'd written for the film called Someday Soon, a jazzy, Georgie Fame-type number that he'd recorded with a soul-tinged group called the Blue Monks, with whom he often performed live. I thought the song was great, and all the elements of a hit seemed to be effortlessly falling into place. A film, a Beatles connection, a great backing group who already knew the song. EMI would soon regret handing this surefire smash to such a humble member of their staff. I would even have changed from the 400 quid. Needless to say, it didn't quite work out like that. The session went well enough, but although EMI more or less had to release it, if only to get Murray's contract off their backs, they gave it virtually no promotion. The song was featured so fleetingly in the film that the average length rustle of a popcorn bag would have obscured it totally. There was to be no champagne reception with Paul, as we launched our Paul McCartney, Murray Head, Tim Rice joint soundtrack album. Baby, I'm so sick of the girl I got now. Just wait a little longer till I give her a round. I'll have you dancing to a new side of tune someday soon. Someday soon. That stupid little woman, well, she's told so many lies It's got to the stage when she's so easy to despise She's on the way out and she's gonna realize Someday soon It's gonna happen, baby Someday soon The breakup seems worth waiting for The reward's worth waiting for I'll give you all you ever wanted Your first and every wish granted well Waiting for 
out in the open air into my room a someday soon. It's gonna happen, baby. Someday soon. Someday soon, Murray Head, It Still Sounds Good to Me. That track may have flopped, but it did cement a lasting bond between Murray and me, which led to our eventual shared success with both Jesus Christ Superstar and Chess. I was, of course, in my spare time, writing songs with Android Webber during my days at EMI in 1966 and 1967, and we were continually attempting to persuade producers or artists to record one of them although our principal energies were concerned with writing for the theatre, at that time our Dr. Bernardo musical, The Likes of Us. We did eventually, however, persuade EMI to take a punt with our material. The first Weber Rice songs ever to be heard on record, even before our first Joseph album, were recorded by a young singer from Cambridge, a lady named Ross Hanneman. She coped excellently, even enthusiastically, with our compositions, Eventually, two singles, A-sides and B-sides. But as had been the case with The Shell and Murray Head, they did not trouble the charts. The first single was called Down Through Summer, which, as the first Weber Rice recording to escape anywhere, I featured in Get Onto My Cloud podcast episode 27. The second of these two singles was entitled 1969, a gloomy, angst-ridden glimpse into the future with lyrics tottering along the knife-edge of pretentiousness, and the melody not a million miles away from Beethoven's Furelise. But the result was entertaining, and 1969 did pick up a few plays on the radio, which was some sort of progress. Then I heard a darker sound was gone, they glide across the endless day, as if to say, the time has come, the world had died, and no one saw, and no one tried, to see what for, and dipping through the heavy sky, I caught its eye, it had to smile and say I shouldn't really mind, it managed fine, for quite a
1969, written and produced by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice in 1967, and sung by Ross Hanneman. Hit records were still some way away for us, perhaps partly because our priority ever since our first meeting had been writing for the stage. But ironically, it was through a record that we eventually had our major breakthrough with Jesus Christ Superstar, particularly in the United States, with an album that preceded any stage version. I owe a great deal to my spell as a management trainee at EMI and learning about the recording studio with Nori Paramore. That was Get Onto My Cloud, episode 49, written and introduced by me, Tim Rice, and produced by the eminent Peter Holtz. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.